0: to 32, and I wanted to to look at this. This morning, we looked at the transfiguration, and this evening we're looking at what happened after that, and especially because it deals with a very uh, difficult subject for some of us, and that is the whole question of faith and doubt, and whether as a Christian you're allowed to doubt, Now, I want to ask what faith is, because there's a misunderstanding about faith, and if you're not a Christian, you may have this misunderstanding, and if you have friends who are not Christians, they will probably have this understanding. They regard faith as being something that you have when you don't have evidence, and when, in fact, maybe you're going against the evidence. You just believe, and they think, Some people will think that that's ridiculous, and other people will think it's highly commendable. But that's not what faith is. Faith, uh, as we'll go through this as we see, faith is based on evidence, but it's in a person, Jesus Christ. Now, the question then becomes, do we have enough faith to call ourselves Christians? What does that mean? How do you become a Christian? How do you know if you've got it? How do you know if you're born again? And I think this passage that we look at is a great help in answering it. Let me also say this as a kind of introduction that there's a big contrast between this section of uh, Mark 9 and the, the immediately preceding one. In the immediately preceding one, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John high up on a mountain. There's this incredible scene that occurs. But then they come down off the mountain, and straight away. They're dealing with satanic possession. They come from Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus to the disciples arguing with the teachers of the law. They come from glory, the glory of the transfiguration, to the pain, weakness, and misery of a boy in agony, a father helpless, and distraught, feeble disciples defeated by the devil's power. And for many of us, that's where we are at. We like our Christianity to be triumphant. We like to say that we have the victory. We like to be walking in victory. I can't remember the song, the kids' song we teach them, I'm I'm, I'm walking in faith and victory. Well, we are. At one sense, perhaps we are. But for some of us as Christians, it's very, very, very difficult because Christianity is not supposed to be about pain and sorrow and so on and, and yet we find ourselves in that situation because we are not isolated from the world and we are not isolated from its hurt and from its pains. Now, that's what's happening here. The disciples have this incredible experience and then they come down and they are straight into one of the most difficult situations they will ever face. You will ask for God to bless you. At least I hope you do. I want the Lord to bless me. But I know that there's a price that's involved in that as well. That as God works in our midst, there's a reaction from the devil and there's an exposing of stuff that's there. There's a kind of fantasy Christianity which people walk around going, yay, I'm happy all the time. Um, There's a kind of Christianity which says, "I, I can't go to church or I can't do this because things are going really bad in my life. We don't seem to grasp and to realize that what we're involved in is very, very real. Now, yesterday, um, when we were at Porterbrook, one of the phrases that I had to talk about was plausibility structure, which, what does that mean? It was just one of these phrases, but it's a man called Leslie Newbegin who uses it. And what it is is simply this it's the generally accepted criteria for knowledge in any given society. So, in our culture, claims with a scientific explanation attached are likely to be believed. So, you read your newspaper tomorrow, and you'll get, well, you might get this, Weetabix is good for you, okay? Now, if you get Weetabix is good for you because my granny says it is, most people won't believe that. But scientists have proved that, and people will believe it. They'll believe any That's a, a a plausibility structure, if you like, where people believe things because they assume that there is evidence behind it, whether or not people understand the science involved. I, I, personally, by the way, I get very confused with all this food advice because I'm told that eggs are bad for me and then I'm told that eggs are good for me. I'm told that wine is bad for me and then I'm told that wine is good for me. And I'm just now basically working on the principle that if it tastes good, it can't really... <laughs> be that. No, that's don't, no, ignore that. That's, that's, that's a terrible way of, of working it out. But um, how, how do we know? How do we work things out? Faith claims tend not to be believed because they're seen as matters of private opinion. So, um, when I have this, and if I was going to go and give it to someone and say, look, would you want to come and find out about Jesus Christ? He's the most wonderful person in the world. People would look at you and go, what? That's your private opinion don't you dare bring your religion to me. that's how people think. But our society is far too naive about knowledge and also far too limited. (coughs) Our society doesn't realize. Our society has got very, very stuck in one way of thinking. And one of the things we're asking people to do with Christianity Explored or coming to church or whatever is asking people to open their minds and to think. In fact, that's, I hope, what we ask Christians to do as well. You are allowed to come to this church and to question. You are allowed to disagree, and you're even allowed to agree, and occasionally to say that you agree. That, that works wonders. But it's, we do encourage people to think for themselves. And when you come to a story like this, I said all of that because there are people who look and say, oh, come on, you can't believe this stuff in the Bible, the healing of a boy with an evil spirit. This morning we had Jesus' clo- clothes turning whiter than Daz. That's not exactly what it says, but it says that it turned whiter than bleach, could bleach them. And he's coming down from the mountain in these white clothes. And Moses and Elijah, who were dead and are now alive, and they meet with him. You don't really. Be- and then there's a, a, a boy comes, a man comes, and his, his son, it says here, his son is demon-possessed. And they say, you can't really believe all of that. But I think that there is very good reason to believe these stories in the Bible, not just from a scientific perspective, but also a logical and experiential, how we experience, and a spiritual. You see, what most people will do looking at this story, what many people will do is they'll say, these people in the Bible were ignorant people, and they didn't know as much about medicine as we do. And when we read this, we can see that this was epilepsy. Epilepsy. And it's just because they were ignorant, they blamed it on the devil. Two problems with that. First of all, people who argue that way are doing so because they presuppose there is no devil. So they're just saying, the devil is not there, this couldn't happen, we have to find another explanation. Which is actually a little bit close-minded. They start off with the answer they want. Secondly, when you actually read the Bible, particularly these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are not the writings of illiterate and ignorant people. Luke's account of this incident says exactly the same as Mark's, describes it in a different way, but says the same thing. And who was Luke? Luke was a doctor. Did they know what epilepsy was in that culture? Yes, they did. They knew the difference between fits and demonic possession. And I think that when people say this is just a myth or just a story, people are assuming that they know too much and they're not realizing how much the writers of the Bible knew. They're not even allowing for the fact of the Holy Spirit uh, guiding and inspiring this. You also have to think about what kind of literature this is. This is not a fable. A fable would be, once upon a time, there was a red dragon lived up Law Hill and came down to rescue a beautiful lady from Perth Road or something. You know, that, that's how you would tell a fable. That's how you tell a fable now. That's how you told a fable then. But the gospel accounts specifically state that they are historical accounts. Now, you can argue if you want. You can say that they're inaccurate, they're not right, and so on. But what you cannot do is saying these people were writing them as myths or as fables. This is an eyewitness account. This is Peter saying, this is what actually happened. And he's not saying it at the time. He's actually saying it much later. Why is that important? Because much later has given him a lot of time to reflect upon it, has given him a lot of time to uh, go through many, many experiences. And this is maybe 20 or 30 years later, this is being written down. And it tells us what actually happened. So, as we look at this story, it is history. It is the truth. It describes what happened. I'm going to look at three things fairly briefly. First of all, I'm going to look at um, the reaction of the crowd who were overwhelmed with wonder. This, verse 15, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Why? Had He done a miracle? No. It's because he came down from the mountain, the experience that he had had of the transfiguration, verse 3, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And they just saw something stunning in Jesus. Now, that wasn't always the case with Jesus. When Jesus was a boy, when Jesus was a young man, when Jesus began his ministry, when Jesus even was on the cross. There was nothing in the appearance of Jesus that would make him stand out. But this was an exception to that. They were overwhelmed with wonder. In fact, they're more than surprised. The the verb used here refers to awe. An awe that's so extreme, such a strong word, that it would cause emotional distress, bodily tremors, and psychological bewilderment. A word that's used in two other parts of this gospel only. In chapter 14 and verse 33, where uh, be on guard, be alert, you do not know when that time will come, the word is there about this whole idea of, it's awesome. In chapter 16, verses 5 to 8, when Jesus is raised from the dead, don't be alarmed, he said, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen, he's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you and then that should be a quotation mark, it says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. And that word, trembling and bewildered, that's the same idea of being overwhelmed with wonder. We, we often say that we would like to see Jesus, and I think we would, but I, I hope that we are people who, as we sang, Uh, stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. There are many, many things in this world that totally astound me and totally amaze me. But the one thing that I find really, really difficult to get a grasp of is not something that is so evil that you just think, how can that possibly be? The hardest thing I find at one level to just appreciate and to understand is something that is so good that it is almost unbelievable, and that is the marvelous, wonderful love of Jesus Christ and the person who Jesus Christ is. Part of becoming a Christian is becoming aware of who Jesus is and having that sense of wonder. I don't want people to come to Christianity Explored or to come to church and to be persuaded by rational arguments that Christianity is the best philosophy, and that religion, Christian religion, is the best religion to follow, and coming to church is a really good thing to do every Sunday. I want people to become Christians. And a Christian is somebody who follows Jesus Christ, and you follow Jesus Christ because you love Jesus Christ, and you love Jesus Christ because you see him as lovely, and you see what he has done. You are not trying to get something from him. You are not trying to manipulate God. You just say, this man is worth following. There's a song uh, of a certain football club, which I used to support a long time ago, but I have repented. Follow, follow, we will follow Rangers. Anywhere, everywhere, we will follow on. I'll not repeat the rest of it, but those of you who know it should be ashamed of yourselves. Uh, There are people who do that. There are people who will follow, follow anywhere and everywhere. I met someone a couple of weeks ago who told me that reckons that each year costs him between 10 and 15,000 pounds to follow, follow, and he thinks that my coming to church every Sunday is a bit fanatical to follow what. Uh, a group of overpaid men kicking a, I was gonna say a pig's bladder around, but you know what I mean, just kicking a a ball around. You'd think it wouldn't make sense, but people do. They they worship in different ways. But for us as Christians, if you're gonna become a Christian, it's because you see who Jesus is. And that's what Christianity Explored is about and what the, the church is about. It's about telling people about Jesus. I think that's what faith is too. We asked what was faith. Faith is about Christ and about becoming aware of Christ and about getting a hint of who Christ is. It is not belief in spite of the evidence. It is belief because of the evidence. Sure, there are lots of things we don't see, but all I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator for all I have not seen. There are lots of things I don't grasp, lots of things that hurt, lots of things that really, really, really wound but I still believe and trust in Jesus Christ, not because I'm shutting my eyes and not seeing everything, but because I'm opening my eyes and seeing who He is. The crowd are overwhelmed with wonder, and that's what we want. We want people to be overwhelmed with wonder, not because of our praise, not because of our building, not because even of our lifestyles, all these different things which are not unimportant, but we want them to be overwhelmed with wonder because they see Jesus. Second, there's Jesus' reaction, where he says, oh, unbelieving generation. He sees that the disciples are arguing. What are you arguing with them about? A man in the crowd answers, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. It seems a very strange and extraordinary reaction. Who does this refer to? I think it refers perhaps to the teachers of the law. I don't, in general, think that it does refer to the disciples. I think it much more refers to the crowd. The structure that's here suggests that Jesus is defending his disciples against the accusations of the crowd and the teachers of the law. Why? Why criticize the crowd? Because what they are doing is this. They are making the failure of the disciples to deal with this situation the reason for not believing in the power of Jesus himself. That's the same thing that happens today. People say, oh, I don't believe in Jesus because Christians don't do this or Christians don't do that. But we don't have that power of Jesus in in the way that people think, as though we had some kind of magic that we could make everything better. I think that we could pass this by fairly easily, but one of the things that's here is the frustration and the exasperation and the emotion of Jesus himself. Jesus was emotional. I think a lot of Christians don't get that. A lot of Christians believe that Jesus was kind of stoical, that he knew what he was doing, that he got on with it, that he had everything sussed, that it, you know, he was perfect in every way and therefore that meant that emotionally he was always all together. But Jesus bled too. Jesus had a physical human body and Jesus had a human psychology. And Jesus had human emotions. Now I think that the Bible teaches that Jesus was without sin, but being without sin doesn't mean emotionless. In fact, not at all. I suspect it means that his emotions were more acute and more sensitive, because very often it's sin that deadens our emotions, as well as heightening them sometime and corrupting them in different ways. But often it's deadening. But Jesus, because he was perfect, couldn't deaden his emotions. He couldn't bury them. He couldn't push them down. He couldn't drown them out with alcohol or, or whatever. And so, it, it, I think that as Christ wept over Jerusalem, he sees here the unbelief of the crowd. He sees the disciples beaten and baffled, helpless and ineffective, and yet he's determined to help. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. So there's this frustration in Jesus' voice. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I think that also teaches us how dependent the disciples are on the Lord. They'd cast out devils, but this was a case too hard for them. John 15 verse 5, without me you can do nothing. Now again, if you're a Christian I suspect that you're like me, that's a very hard lesson for you to learn. Because again, we live in a culture where people keep telling you, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And it's really, really hard to think, I can't do this. I just can't do this. It's a hard lesson for us to learn, and one we do not often like. And yet, that is the mark of Christian maturity, that every day we need the grace and the presence of Christ that we know without him we can do nothing. I remember sometimes, not often, but sometimes waking up in the morning, going downstairs, sitting in my chair and thinking, I can't do this, Lord. I just can't do this. I can't do this anymore. And not quite an audible voice, but almost as though someone's saying, at last, you get it. You can do it. Of course you can do it. That's just the realistic situation. You can do it. You are utterly and totally and 100 percent dependent on me. Without Christ, we can do nothing. With Christ, we can overcome the greatest temptations. So, I want to say this to those of you who are Christians and who profess the name of Christ. Don't live a double life. Don't put Jesus in a box. Don't have a Jesus whom you worship when you live a life which is about yourself. Whatever situation you are in, whatever emotional mess you are in, whatever struggles that are there in your life, of course you can do it. But you're supposed to believe in Jesus Christ who can. Again, there's a huge amount to learn about faith here. It's in Christ, not in His disciples. And it's utter dependence on Christ. Is there anything more pathetic than the cry of the Christian who says, oh, I don't want to be a Christian because other Christians are sinful and they let me down? you really need to grow up because, of course, that's what we are. But my faith is not dependent on other Christians. We can love other Christians precisely because Christ loves us, precisely because Christ takes their sin as well as my sin. Faith recognizes, coming back to what faith is, that without Christ we are helpless. If we think we are fine and we do not need Christ, then we have not understood and we will not have faith. If you get a chance, listen to Ravi Zacharias's podcast for this week. He tells a story that he heard from Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, who had Stalin's daughter, Svetlana, staying with him for three weeks. And Stalin's daughter told Malcolm Muggeridge that when Stalin was dying, on his bed, the very last thing he did was sit up and shake his fist at God, a God he said he didn't believe in was this, just this hatred and clenched fist towards God. What we do as Christians is the very opposite. All our days, we sing of our Redeemer, all our days, we don't have a clenched fist to Jesus Christ. We have an open hand that says, Lord, I need help. And that's the third thing. I do believe the reaction of the desperate. Look at this this poor father. He comes. Teacher, I brought you my son. I asked your disciples to drive him out, but they could not. Yes, of course, the devil can have an influence over our children. But of course, if young hearts can be filled by Satan, they can be filled by the Spirit of God. I was speaking, um, mentioned Mez, and Mez yesterday said one of the things he found in in, coming to Edinburgh and in being in Scotland was just the hardness in so many people's faces. The hardness and, and the pain and the despair and the hatred. And to see that changed by the Spirit of God. The Father had faith. That's true. He brought His sons to the disciples of Jesus because He had faith. They failed. This seems to have crushed His faith in the ability of Jesus there was still some belief, because he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And he's in a position that many of you are in. You kind of believe, you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, you've committed your life to follow Jesus, but you're confused because things have happened that don't seem to fit in with that. Unbelief and belief will often mix together. John Calvin, I love this quote. He declares that he believes and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. As our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are partly unbelievers, but God forgives us and exercises such forbearance towards us as to reckon us believers on account of a small portion of faith. Now, I'll tell you why I find that encouraging because there are so many Christians who seem to be saying, you've got to believe 100% and be totally committed 100% and not doubt anything. Otherwise, your belief won't work. But all of us have trust and doubt, hope and fear existing side by side. So what do we do? We should use our faith. It is weak. It is trembling, but we must use it. We don't wait until it's strong and perfect. In fact, those Christians who think that their faith is strong and perfect, they are the most obnoxious Christians you will ever meet, and they are really heading for a stumble and a fall. Humility, the recognition, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We must resist our unbelief and pray against it, not give in to it. There are Christians who say, oh, I just had a pang of unbelief there. I just had a doubt. I have to give everything up. Why? Have you ever doubted anything else? You ever doubted your relationship with your wife or your relationship with your husband? You ever doubted about your job? Have you ever doubted about your life? Have you never woken up in the morning and said, what's the point of living? So just because you have a doubt, do you give up your marriage? Do you slit your wrists? Do you? No, of course you don't. So why should it be with faith when you, you think, oh, I'm having these doubts and fears. Oh, well, I'd better give it all in. That doesn't make sense. We must resist our unbelief and pray against it and we must never allow it to keep us away from Christ. What does everything is possible for him who believes" means? It could mean three things. I'll just mention them. Um, The first two I think are wrong. It could mean I, Jesus, can do everything because of my faith. Then the man clearly misunderstands and gets it wrong. I don't think that's what's being said. It could mean everything is possible if only you have enough faith. This would mean the man is disqualified because he hasn't got enough faith. He says it himself. I believe, help my unbelief. That's the common view of faith that people have. You're people of faith. You have great faith. You have great faith. But you don't need great faith because the third one is the real one. Everything is possible if you have faith in what I, Jesus, can do for you. That's the most likely and the most clearest explanation. The emphasis then is not on the degree of faith, but on the relationship between Jesus and the man on the relationship of trust between the man and Jesus. Now, that's the key. It's not the amount, it's not the degree or the quality of faith, it's who the faith is in. Faith as small as a mustard seed is very strong if it is in Christ. Matthew 17:20 in Matthew's account of this, because you have so little faith, you couldn't do this. You have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. I think the disciples thought, we can do this. We've been casting out demons right, left, and center. We've been given this power. We can do it. They lost their dependence and their reliance on Jesus. The emphasis is surely on, not on our faith, but on the power of the master with whom we are joined by faith. And that means we then have room for our faith to grow. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Why couldn't we drive this out, they say? This kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Uh, I don't have time to go into all of that, but just simply to say that it's easy for us to lose vitality and to lose humility. The disciples had been given power from Jesus, but they had not nurtured that power with prayer. They seemed to think that they had the abilities and the power. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. But to trust in God's power, one man puts it, in the sense that we imagine we have it in our control and at our disposal is tantamount to unbelief for it is really to trust ourselves instead of in God. When you see a poster that says, come and experience the power of God in this meeting, you stay away from that meeting. The reason? Because there's somebody claiming to have the power of God on tap. You don't know that. You don't know that. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't have God on on tap like that. And for me, you you watch Christian television and things like that sometimes, and you get evangelists and so on talking about, we have the power, we've got the power, and so on. No, Christ has the power, and if the Holy Spirit doesn't turn up, then it's all fake. It's all sham. I believe with all my heart that the Holy Spirit can do whatever the Holy Spirit wants. He is God. But I also believe it is blasphemy for any human being to claim to have control of the Holy Spirit. That's wrong. So faith is in Christ. It's the relationship to Him, it's the commitment to Him. It's a bit like a marriage. You make a commitment, you know about who you're marrying, you don't half marry them. You commit to them because you trust them and you know them, but you don't know them perfectly, and you know that marriage is only the beginning and that you'll continue to learn and to grow in relationship. You don't go, bang, I'm married and then everything is floating along at the same level all the time you are growing and developing in your relationship and that is the same in our relationship with Jesus let me return to this oh sorry that was the mustard seed faith is the mustard seed let me return to this wonder of the crowd jesus healed the boy he knew the spirit, deaf and dumb. There was a violent convulsion, verse 26. The boy looked like a corpse. There's a, a, a reaction. Many said, he's dead. Look, Jesus has failed. Jesus takes him by the hands, lifts him to his feet, and he stands up. They were, Luke's record of this event, 943 says, they were all amazed at the greatness of God the Lord exercises complete dominion over the devil. I command you, what the disciples could not do, do Jesus did. Greater is he that is for us than he that is against us. There's a promise, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I think for me in this whole story, and what I would want you to take home more than anything else, is the incredible love of Jesus Christ? Because think on it this way: He's been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's been talking with Elijah and with Moses. And um, some of you questioned my statement this morning that Elijah and Moses were there encouraging Jesus, because it doesn't say that, and you're right to question. But I'm still right. No, but there's still. I think I do think that that's what was happening. But I think that Christ gained an increasing awareness of what was going to happen to him. And when he talks with Elijah, the prophet, and when he talks with Moses, the representative of the law, I think Christ, there's this increasing consciousness of just how much it is going to cost him, an awareness that rises to its very height when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane but he's up on that mountain. It's a huge, huge deal. He comes down from that mountain, and he walks straight into a mess. His concern is for this individual father and his wee boy. In the midst of all the agony and of all the exasperation that Christ himself felt, he is able to concentrate and give himself solely to the one man. He, he's and for me, for me, that's extraordinary. I think one of the things that you find hardest to believe as a Christian is simply this: in general, you can accept Jesus loves the world, God so loved the world. But in practice and emotionally, I think you find it very hard to believe that Jesus has the time or the inclination to actually love you and to care about your circumstances. Maybe in the big things, perhaps, but in the smaller things, no you're feeling discouraged, depressed, downcast, why should Jesus bother? You know you're supposed to worship him. It's not supposed to be the other way around, is it? Is he supposed to come to you? Actually, whether he's supposed to or not, he does. And all the time, it's not just that we have our hands out open towards Jesus Christ, unlike Stalin with his fists clenched, but also we worship a God who doesn't have his fists clenched against us, but he has his hands open to us about absolutely everything. Sometimes people say, why do you believe? And I say, look at Jesus. That's a God who is worth believing in. Surely he is. Be encouraged by that. If you're not a Christian, come to know him. And if you are a Christian, don't listen to the lies of the evil one. The Lord is with you, and he is with you to bless you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, what you did for that man and his young son. Despite all that was being laid upon your shoulders, even at that time, despite the exasperation and the frustration, despite the sinfulness of your disciples and the unbelief of the crowd, that you still cared for and acted for, that man and his boy. We thank you that you are the Lord of transfiguration, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the Lord of hosts, and that as such you are the one who knows the very depths of our being, who knows the very hairs of our head, who knows the trouble we have gone and are going through, who knows the pain and the agony that if we were to really, truly grasp it, we would not be able to bear it. But You know, and You lift us up, and You call us to come to You and to rest. Lord, I pray that as we, as we sing our final song, that as we sing it to You, that we would realize what that means, that we've heard Your voice, that you ask us to come to you and rest. Help us to do so in your name. Amen. I'm going to sing a song written by Horatius Boner. It is a beautiful, beautiful song. The tune is a tune written by uh, Vaughan, or arranged by Vaughan Williams. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Gareth to play it through, first of all, because I'm sure some of you will know it, but uh, some of you want. Um, we'll leave the words up as he plays the tune through. Uh, remain seated uh, as he does that, and then uh, we'll stand together and we will sing this. But first of all, if you play the tune through first, guy.